You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Breitman. Today, I'm sitting down with John Farragon to talk about this year's International AIDS Conference. Welcome again, John. Thanks, Mariana. Happy to be here today. So, John, what can you tell us about this year's AIDS 2022 meeting? Where was it held and what topics were covered? Yeah, so um, thanks, Marianne, again. Uh, this I think this will be a good um, two-part series, I think, on uh, on the AIDS conference that was held recently. Um conference was held in Montreal, Canada. Um, this was from July uh, 29th, the end of July, to early August, August 2nd. Um, it was also it was kind of like a hybrid conference. It was actually done virtually and also in person. Um, so what I thought we'd do in the first two episodes on this is to cover some of the key data presented at the conference. The first section we'll do we'll do today um, is uh, is on prep uh, and some of the prep related studies. And then um, next week, what we'll do is we'll cover the the, the treatment studies. So uh, prevention, uh, you know, as a whole, which will include some of the data uh, on use of uh, preventative antibiotics after sexual exposure. There's a good study on doxycycline. Um, there's a few studies on PrEP, both the injectable in particular, and also some oral meds as well that are included in those in those studies. And then we'll round out the section study looking at the six-month dispensing of PrEP. So uh, this is a study where they looked at self-testing for HIV along the way. Um, it allowed for less frequent visits, which I think is very interesting. Um, so here we go. So first, we're going to look at the doxy uh, STI uh, study. So uh, this has been kind of out there before. There's some as a background. Um, some people have studied the use of intermittent doxycycline for post-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, and it was shown in some of the older studies to reduce the occurrence of some of the initial episodes of bacterial STIs in men having sex with men at high risk for STIs. Um, there was a 70 and 63% reduction in chlamydia and syphilis numbers, um, but there was no prevention efficacy for gonorrhea. So just to be clear, they gave basically gave people um, doxycycline as, as post-exposure prophylaxis for, um, for, for, um, for certain STIs, and they showed that there was a reduction in chlamydia and syphilis numbers. So what they did in this doxy prep trial uh, w- was designed a little bit differently. It was di- designed to ac- assess the efficacy of doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis uh, for the prevention of STIs in men having sex with men and transgender women. This is a large randomized open label study. um, And it was done at HIV and STI clinics in both San Francisco and Seattle. So uh, definitely on on the West Coast. Uh, What they looked at in this study, Mariana, is is primary endpoint of at least 
um, at least one incident STI, either gonorrhea, chlamydia, or syphilis during quarterly STI tests in these people who are on PrEP and in people with HIV. So they had patients who were on Truvada or Descovy or other drugs as well, probably for PrEP, right? And persons living with HIV. And then they had this in the middle of it, in, in, those, in those different populations, they did this doxy prep, prep study to look at uh, whether um, doxy after exposure to, uh, after, you know, after sex could make a difference in, in reducing STIs for these patients. So interesting, the study was actually stopped in May um, of 2022. These were uh, some interim analysis done by the Data Safety Monitoring Board. And the, sh the study showed significant effectiveness in both cohorts, whether you were on on PrEP or also the, or on, on or a person living with HIV. If you took Doxy for post-exposure, it worked well. So how was the study conducted and what did it show? Yeah, so in the in the persons living with HIV cohort, these were MSM, uh, men having sex with men, and transgender women with HIV. Um, and they, the plan N was 390. They gave doxycycline 200 milligrams uh, uh, as post-exposure in a two-to-one fashion or no post-exposure within 72 hours of condomless sexual contact. And then they compared that to, uh, to a cohort of patients who were on PrEP. So these were MSM or transgender women receiving HIV PrEP, and they got doxycycline uh, two-to-one as post-exposure prophylaxis or no post-exposure prophylaxis within 72 hours of condomless sexual contact. So basically, SIMISAC designed two different populations. Um, uh, you get doxy 200 milligrams, one-time dose um, within 72 hours after a condomless sex act. And basically, they're comparing uh, people who are on PrEP and people who are living with HIV on antiretroviral therapy, basically. So these are, these are kind of the two populations. So what did they show? So this is important, I think. I think it's an important study. Um, so when they looked at the PrEP cohort, these are patients on PrEP. Um, the people who got... Um, uh, who got doxycycline, there was only 10.7%, just about 11% of people had an STI in the doxy arm, while 32% uh, of people in the standard of care arm, which was no doxycycline, uh, had an STI. So really almost basically a three-time, three-fold um, number of, of patients getting STIs if, if they did not receive uh, doxycycline. In the persons with HIV cohort, almost identical numbers, 12% um, STIs in the doxy prep arm versus 30% in the standard of care, basically no doxy arm. Um, and so if you look at these results, the bottom line is that in patients who are on HIV prep and in people living with HIV, the use of this doxy cycling for 200 milligram dose for post-exposure prophylaxis after condomless sex made a huge difference in the overall rates of STIs for these patients. Just a few comments on some of the baseline characteristics. So we know that there were MSM and there were transgender women, but the median age was 38, 67% were white, uh, about 30% were Latinx, 96% men. Um, male sexual partners only was only an 87%. So about 12, 13% of people reported being having male and, and female sexual partners in the past 12 months. Um, and in the past 12 months, uh, about 70% had, had gonorrhea, 60% with chlamydia, 20% had, had syphilis for an median of nine sexual partners in the past 12 months. And then there was some substance use as well, reporting about 60% of people. So they also, um, in addition to this whole analysis, Mariana, they also did what we call a risk reduction calculation per quarter using doxyprep. So basically, what is the reduction in STIs in every quarter for the different STIs if you're on doxy prep and the doxy prep arms. 
So whether you're in the PrEP cohort or the person with HIV cohort, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis were dramatically reduced, and there was large risk reductions. And some of those are, you know, uh, for gonorrhea, it, it was um, not as not as high for gonorrhea as it is for chlamydia and syphilis, but um, even but even gonorrhea, fifty five percent reduction roughly um, for for um, for chlamydia and syphilis, it's about an eighty percent reduction. Uh, so we're looking at really large numbers of uh, of STIs being reduced by patients on uh, on on these on this medication. And what can you tell listeners about in terms of adverse events and resistance? Yeah, so I think the resistance piece is the question that everybody kind of wants to know, and I'll talk about that in a sec. But, you know, really no grade three adverse events, no grade two abnormalities, no serious adverse events. You know, the doxypep was well tolerated. Discontinuations due to intolerance or patient choice was about 1.5%. Um, 88% of the participants described the doxypep as acceptable, very acceptable. Um, a median of seven acts, uh, sex acts per month were reported in these patients. Um, with 87% of the acts covered by the doxycycline by self-report. So the big potential issue, obviously, is the resistance data. So they looked at tetracycline susceptibility data, which is available for about 30% of the gonorrhea cases and about 20% of the tetracycline resistance um, observed at baseline. It's it's very consistent with U.S. gonorrhea data, which is 20%. And of note, 56% of tetracycline resistance was reported in the previous reported hypergase study, that's where they kind of initially looked at doxy uh, for this uh, for this indication. So, you know, in general, what's the bottom line here? So, doxy uh, post exposure, uh, 200 milligrams taken within 72 hours of condomless sex, it reduced the STI incidence in MSM and transgender women. 62% of the persons with HIV cohort, 66 in the patients on PrEP uh, per quarter, uh, and then the incidence of gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis each reduced substantially. Uh, with the best results shown for chlamydia and Ghana and syphilis. So, so doxypep seems to be well tolerated, um, associated you know, with high adherence by self-report, very few discontinuations, and this might be uh, a potential option uh, to prevent STIs in populations where the, where the STI incidence is highest. So it's a great strategy. I think the ongoing surveillance needs to monitor the, the, the tetracycline and doxycycline resistance in gonorrhea and for other organisms. But I think this is going to be uh, a potential important um, addition to the armamentarium to basically to reduce STIs, especially in those patients who may be having, having condomless sex while on uh, on uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV prevention. John, I'm curious as to whether any new information was presented about injectables for PrEP. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so all, there was some good studies there. So two studies, the 084 and the 083 study were both updated. First is going to be the the 084 study update, if you remember, this is the uh, randomized controlled trial of long-acting injectable cavitegavir. Um, these are in HIV uh, uninfected cisgender women at increased risk of HIV infection. You may recall that the efficacy and safety has been previously reported for the blinded study period, demonstrated really superiority of, of the of the cav injection over oral daily TDF-FTC for the prevention of HIV. So this is Truvada, basically, um, that, that it's compared to. HIV incidence was dramatically reduced, you know, per 100-person year, years with CAB um, uh, compared to, to Nofibir FTC. So the current analysis, what they looked at, they looked at the additional safety uh, of an additional year of follow-up that combined the blinded and the unblinded period through December of 2021. So this is kind of a, an extension analysis. And there were six additional inf- uh, infections in the in the CAB arm and 56 infections in the TDF-FTC arm. 
um, overall. So that hazard ratio is still looking very good. 80% um, of the grade um, two adverse events were only related to study drugs, low rates of injection site reactions. Um, they also had, uh, they also looked at during the 12 month unblinded phase, the long acting cab maintained superiority. Again, as you would all kind of expect based on the data we know so far. Um, but that HIV incidence was reduced by 89%, almost 90% reduction uh, with cabotegavir when you compare that to TDFFTC, really good, really good numbers. Safety profiles consistent with previous data, no new safety signals. Um, the incidence of pregnancy, I think, increased between the blinded and the unblinded um, period. The most important thing I think here is the, the pregnancy outcomes. So that's one of the big questions that people have about CAV is what about pregnancy? And here there were no congenital abnormalities resulted in either study group, whether you're on Truvada or whether you're on cabotegavir. So I think the big story here is that we get some initial data uh, in small numbers of patients, but again, for patients who were pregnant, um, that there were no congenital abnormalities, which I think is really important. So that's the 084 study. Now in the 083 study, they did a nice uh, look at uh, transgender women. Uh, and is that, that population is very important population. It certainly needs attention as it relates to PrEP and HIV prevention. So this was a randomized double-blind study, very similar to, similar to 08-4. However, this was done in cisgender uh, and men in sex with men and also transgender women. And again, showed superiority for CAB over TDF-FTC. So since this transgender uh, women population is really a priority group for HIV prevention, um, they've really been under underrepresented in a lot of the trials. And so what they looked at is safety, prevention, efficacy, all these things in, in, um, in transgender women during the blinded phase of 083. So it's very, very interesting to see this. Um, the CAB drug concentrations were looked at uh, in a subset of transgender women who were also receiving, uh, all who had received rejections, but also could have been on uh, hormonal therapy. So that's actually important too. So the, um, uh, the uh, the hormonal therapy is, is an important question as well. Uh, most of these patients were for, were from uh, from the trip for the transgender women that they looked at. There was 570 out of a total of 4,500 patients. So 570 patients were transgender women. Just to give you perspective, about 4,000 were men having sex with men. But the transgender women, most of them were 18 to 29. That was about 83 uh, percent. Most of them were for age from Asia or Latin America also from the United States, but most, uh, probably about 60, 70% of them from Latin America and Asia. Um, most had um, had a higher rates of emotional, physical, or sexual abuse in the past. So that's the interpersonal violence data is actually there too. That's something I think is important. We don't often don't see that in some of the clinical studies that we talk about, um, but to have some, um, what I would say kind of, I think some of the psychosocial uh, components of, of, of um, HIV prevention, and, and it's certainly in, in, the transgender women population where there may be more higher rates of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. It was actually shown in this study where those numbers are, are a little bit higher than what we saw in just the men having sex with men uh, population and overall. So transgender women experience that more, more frequently. Also interesting, the perceived low risk of HIV infection was much higher uh, for uh, transgender women versus MSM as well. So there's a various numbers of um, hormonal therapies, which include um, ethanol estradiol, estradiol valerate, estradiol itself, spironolactone. They kind of included all of these, and they kind of looked at all all these um, all of, all of these patients. Some of these patients on uh, looked at drug levels on or cabotegavir while they're on some of these hormonal therapies. So the most important thing about all this is that basically the plasma cabotegavir drug concentrations were measured in 53 of the transgender women who received on who were receiving on time. Cabotegavir injections. 30 
trans of those transgender women were using hormonal therapy, 23 were not through week 53. And when he looked at the drug concentrations, they were similar overall between people receiving hormonal therapy versus those not receiving hormonal therapy. So what that tells us is that it doesn't tell us anything about the um, the hormonal therapy levels, but it tells us about the cabotegravir levels, which is what we're probably most concerned with. But I would argue, and many of you would agree with me, the patients are, I think, oftentimes worried about what about the hormonal therapy levels. And again, um, there, there, you know, a lot of this um, wasn't the, the, that that part of it was not done. They did not, not did not look at at least in this study, they did not look at the hormonal therapy level. So that's going to be an important piece for people, I think, to know about. So what's the bottom line here? So long-acting injectable cab, it's safe, it's effective. We know that it works for transgender women, but there was a lower incidence of HIV infection. Uh, very similar numbers to what we saw in the MSM group uh, and also what we saw in and even in the OA3 uh, women's study. Um, but consistent with overall study population, incidence of grade two, three adverse events are very similar. Uh, and based on some of the data that we've seen so far, the various commonly used hormonal therapies appear not to affect the cabotegravir concentration. So that's really, I can't I think the big picture um, of what we're trying to, what they were trying to show here is that really there's no change in cabotegravir levels when somebody's on hormonal therapies. John, can you talk a little bit about the study on dispensing six months of PrEP? Yeah. So this is going to be the last one we'll cover today. And this one I want to talk about, Mariana, because I think it's important. Important. Um, this was a, a study was actually done in Sub-Saharan Africa, but you know, PrEP is really uh, provided primarily at quarterly visits um, in, in general and requires HIV testing. It's a barrier a lot of times to some of the facility delivered PrEP because of cost, distance to the facility. You know, it's not like you could take a bus and get to where you got to go. Some of these clinics are, you know, you, patients have to walk and it's for miles, and, and sometimes it's not always easy to get to where you need to go. Uh, wait time, stigma, etc., all these things. So. Simplifying model, models of PrEP, I think, delivery are really needed on some of these populations that are hard to reach. So, and this is, a um, again, a sub-Saharan Africa study where they looked at 12-month outcomes of people who were using every six-month clinic visits um, and then um, for PrEP dispensing, and they were using HIV self-testing during that time period. And then they were randomized to basically the normal, typical way of doing it, which is every three months. So if, if you looked at basically all of this information, you'll see that the um, um, they looked at a bunch of different outcomes, you know, the refills at six months, how well patients did. And basically, if you look at, at 12 months, the people in the six months prep dispensing plus HIV self-testing um, uh, had very similar numbers to what was shown with patients who were going every three months. It was actually, um, but the difference here is that you really showed a reduction in the number of clinic visits by half. And again, with no reduction in HIV testing because they were doing self-testing during this time period. Care retention was very good. Um, no difference in PrEP adherence. So among, in, in, in among enrolled single women, the intervention significantly increased the PrEP adherence at 12 months. So there's actually better adherence at 12 months for, for some women. So what's the bottom line here, Marianne? I think the bottom line is that six months PrEP dispensing plus HIV self-testing is a potential strategy. And as we think about COVID even, when we think about you know, alternative models of care, does the patient need to come into the clinic to get all their testing done? And can a lot of this be done on the outpatient side where they go and do their own test or self-testing even for even for anal paps and other types of interventions and other types of screening, uh, uh, screening things? Some of this is done by the patient. They're given the swabs when they leave. They said, you know, do your swab in three months and then come back. But, you know, can you extend the, the interval for PrEP visits out to six months so that they don't have to do all these 
come in for all these tests if they can do them at home? I think that's really the question. Again, this is a South African study. So again, it may not actually apply, sorry, Sub-Saharan African study, which may not apply here to the US exactly, but I think it helps us to kind of get a sense that there may be patients who may not want to come to the clinic and may be able to do some of this testing and, and, and maybe a strategy to keep people on prep. You know, obviously you still need to do STI testing, but you know, this might be a, an option for some people. John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us a little bit about this year's AIDS 2022 conference. Join us next time for part two of our conference coverage. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.necaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at NikaATC.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.